Well, will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. You'll need a Bible. So the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. And as they do, get their attention if you need a Bible. And they'll give that to you. Keep it. Bring it back each uh, Lord's Day so that you own a Bible. We want to give that to you as a gift. We're going to resume our series in the book of Psalms next Sunday. We'll be looking at Psalm 86 next Lord's Day for those who like to read ahead. Today we'll be considering the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. When our girls were in high school, our family would usually attend the annual play that the school's drama department would put on. It was always a, a treat to see those young people and their talents put on display. They would invariably provide a marvelous performance, and afterwards we'd spend a good bit of time going on about each of the young people and their parts and expressing our astonishment at their abilities. Now, picture a group of people in the foyer of a theater after a performance, and there's that type of chatter about the play and about those in it. Or perhaps you're coming out of a, a football game with family or friends. Your team is one. You're all trying to get a word in about who made the best play, and you're just recounting the whole game and what the various players did. Or you've just come from a class reunion, and having reacquainted with people that you haven't seen for years, you're informed about their lives and all they've accomplished, and you're impressed and grateful and perhaps humbled all at the same time. And at the end of each of these, the theatrical performance, the sporting event, the class reunion, at the end of each, you and others are talking about the exploits of the various participants, and yet someone in each group says, isn't he amazing? You're in the foyer at the theater, and you say, who? Which one are you, are you talking about? The guy who had the, the lead role? You're on your way out of the football game, and amidst all the clamor about all the players and the plays in the game, someone says, isn't he amazing? And you say, who? Who are you talking about? The starting quarterback? Or as you recount with classmates the night at your reunion and all that you've each heard, and someone says, isn't she amazing? And you say, who? The gal who wrote several novels and became a famous author? In each of these, there are multiple participants and yet at the end, somebody says, isn't he amazing? Isn't she amazing? And in answer to your question, who at the theater, the answer is the, the director, because he had put it all together, and he had to know what it was supposed to look like before any of those multiple actors had any clue and before they played their parts. To be sure, they were each responsible for their role, but they wouldn't be there and couldn't have done that without the director. And when you ask who is so amazing after the game, the answer is the coach. Because he had to pull various people together and make them more than they thought they could be. He saw what they could become, gave them the tools and training they needed, and got them where they needed to go. And as you think about your classmates and what many have become, and someone says, isn't she amazing? And you ask who, the answer is that consensus favorite teacher who took personal interest in her students and inspired them to become all they could. As we approach Hebrews 12, we find ourselves like those in the theater foyer 
or leaving the football game or at the end of our class reunion. Verse 1 of chapter 12 begins with the word therefore because it's pointing us back to what precedes and we're amazed that the various actors in chapter 11, known to most of us as Faith's Hall of Fame, because it lists numerous people from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, who live for God because of their genuine faith, their belief in Him. I've told you many times over the years, I remind you importantly here, that the Greek word in your New Testament translated faith is the same word for belief. So it says over and over the words, by faith, by faith Noah, and then it tells what Noah did. And by faith Abraham tells us then what he did. And by faith Joseph and what he accomplished. And by faith Moses and the children of Israel and the army in Jericho and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets. By faith or by believing, they did all that they did. But after having told us about the accomplishments of all of these people, and at the end of it, the writer of Hebrews says, in effect, isn't he amazing? And who would that be? Verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. This morning, as we conclude the first month of this new year, we want to see why, although we have such a great number of testimonies from the lives of people in chapter 11, why it is, in fact, Jesus to whom we're to look as we run the race that the Lord has assigned to each of us. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Father, we're thankful that we are here, thankful to you, because it's from your hand, providentially guiding our circumstances, that we are able to be here through the weather, through it all, the events of this week in each of our lives. Thank you for giving us the desire to be here. We could be other places, much easier for us to be. But you have caused us to desire to want to be in your presence in a special way among your people, to sing praise to you and learn of you. We ask you to help us do that very thing so that we can better love and serve you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The outline that you received when you came in today, I say, Jesus provides motivation that should lead us to action. Now we'll see how Jesus is the ultimate motivation for how we should live at the end of our time, but for now, what role do these heroes of faith in chapter 11 play for us? Verse 1 again says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So what they are are witnesses. Now does that mean that they see us from heaven? That they're witnessing What's happening with us now? The answer is no for two reasons. Uh, that would make heaven something else. If they're looking down, seeing what's going on here, it would destroy, in fact, the bliss of heaven. But here's the other reason. The word witness is the word in your New Testament for testimony. 
the late uh, academic and theologian S. Lewis Johnson said, the Old Testament saints are referred to not as spectators of us, but as witnesses in Scripture. That is, the writer of Hebrews has just given us the 40 verses of chapter 11 in which he's talked about the works of faith, which those great men and women have done. In that case, the Old Testament saints are witnesses in Scripture to faith, and so they are witnesses to us. He says this, it is what we see in them, not what they see in us. It's their testimony, their witness to us. And so what do we see in them? We see the work of Christ in their lives. We see the work of God in their lives. And even though they are all from the Old Testament, and they are centuries before the writer of Hebrews wrote what he did, and we are now 2,000 years removed from that, this is the same Christ, the same God, who is at work in our lives. In fact, the next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why do I need that? Why do you need that? These examples of the work of Christ in the lives of those who have gone before. Well, it's because I am called to the race. You are called to the race just as they were. The end of verse 1 says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So we're called to live like we're in the race. And you see that in a number of passages in Scripture where because we are in the race, we adjust our lives accordingly. We live as though we're moving toward a goal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said to the believers there, those who buy something should live as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world should live as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Paul told his young protege, Timothy, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. I asked Pastor Larry to read for us earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. And this one who wrote that, the Apostle Paul, in the race, moving toward the goal, says this famously in Philippians 3, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. And then at the end of his life, in the very last chapter of the last book that the Apostle Paul would write before he was executed for his faith in Christ Jesus, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought the fight, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now the word used to describe this race in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12 is the word from which we get our English word agony. I am, we are, called to the race, the often difficult race, 
that is the Christian life. The examples of those in chapter 11, in and through whom Christ worked to finish their race, and especially the example of the Lord Jesus himself, should then motivate us. It should motivate us, I say in the outline, to remove hindrances. Verse 1 again, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Everything that hinders is the Greek word onkos. We get oncology or oncologist from it. That would be someone who treats cancer. Someone who identifies a tumor, a weight that shouldn't be there, and then seeks to give treatment so that it's dissolved or surgically they remove it. Everything that hinders is a weight. It's, a, it's like a tumor that shouldn't be there. It's something unnecessary that weighs you down for purposes of the race. It makes it more difficult to run the race. Now notice, these unnecessary things are not always sinful in themselves. It says in verse 1, throw off everything that hinders, and then it says, and the sin. So there's everything that hinders and there's the sin. And the stuff that weighs you down, that hinders you, that keeps you from running as you could and should, are often good things, not sinful. They're not necessarily sin in themselves, they're just unnecessary distractions for the Christian life. So here's what three commentators say about these. One says, when we ask about a certain habit or condition, what's wrong with that? The answer often is nothing in itself. The problem is not in what the weight is, but in what it does. It keeps us from running well, and so from finishing well and winning. Another says, if we want to travel far, we must travel light. There is in life an essential duty to discard things. There may be habits, pleasures, self-indulgences, or associations which hold us back. We must shed them as athletes take off their tracksuits when they go to the starting blocks. A third says, I remember the effect that this verse had on me as a boy when I heard someone explain that we must lay aside not only sins, but everything that hinders, that is, every weight or obstacle, things that in themselves may not be sins. And he says this was revolutionary. What it did was show me that the fight of faith, the race of the Christian life, is not fought well or run well by asking, what's wrong with this or that, but by asking, is it in the way? Is it in the way of greater faith and greater love and greater purity and greater courage and greater humility and greater patience and self-control? Not is it a sin, but does it help me run or is it in the way? And so he said, don't ask. He was, in this case, talking particularly to young people. He said, don't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, your habits, what's wrong with it. Ask, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? 
and young or old, we need to ask the same kinds of questions. And he suggested writing on a pad of paper, yes, the entangling sins, but also the seemingly innocent weights and encumbrances that are not explicitly condemned in the Bible, but which you know are holding you back in the race of faith and of love and strength and holiness and courage and freedom. Make note of the ways you subtly make provision for these hindrances, that you arrange your life around them. He says the computer games, the television, videos, I would add TikTok, Instagram. And in addition, note the people that we gain. And note the time that's wasted and thrown away. Jesus provides motivation. Motivation to remove hindrances. But also motivation to, I say in the outline, remove temptations. Verse 1 says, Let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, the sin that entangles us, it has the article in English because it has it in Greek. The sin. The sin. And people have puzzled about what might that sin be. I am convinced, along with others, that in the context, which is all about faith, belief, what belief in God, in Christ, accomplishes in the life of his people, all in chapter 11, by faith, by belief, they did all of these things. Because that's the case, the sin is unbelief. The sin is failure to believe. It is lack of faith. The exact opposite of by faith, by believing in chapter 11. And here's why that is, friends. Because behind every sin, every last sin, is the sin which is failure to believe God. Every last one. I ask you, what do you look at on your computer, brother or sister? What do you look at on your phone? When you look at forbidden images, it is because you do not believe that Jesus satisfies more than the airbrushed image on the screen. And those distractions, those hindrances, can themselves become sin when they reveal what we really believe about Jesus. When you love the roar of the crowd at the game, or the thrill of the drive on the golf course, or the retirement years where you choose to do little of lasting value, or the career that fulfills you only because your standards are so low, or the swell of pride when your kid scores the goal, makes the basket, or crosses the line first. When you love those good things all, when you love those good things more than Jesus, when you prioritize those things over Jesus, it's because you don't believe he's better. You don't have faith 
that he's better, which means at those times at least, in those moments at least, you don't truly believe in the true Jesus. That's my heart. That's your heart. At times throughout your week, as you structure it around, thing, around things that are less than healing. Attending church on Sunday and putting money in the plate do not necessarily mean that my focus is on Jesus. They may just be the habit I learned early in life or they're just part of my cultural Christianity. This is just what good people are supposed to do. And so I do it. Signs of genuine faith are when we cultivate a heart for God and others. We're becoming sensitive to the Spirit's conviction when we hear God's word. And we have a regularly repentant attitude. I mean, listen, if my unbelief shows up, and your unbelief shows up in the kinds of ways that I describe throughout your week, don't we have to regularly be recognizing that and repenting of it? And turning from it? One of the reasons that we don't regularly repent is because we don't regularly recognize the things that are in our lives that keep us from the one who's most important. Genuine faith is when we see the beauty of Christ in who he is and in what he's done, and we see the work of God in all our circumstances, and we thank him for it, and we seek to grow in it, all because we believe Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it. Jesus provides motivation to remove the hindrances, to remove temptation and motivation, to move forward. When verse 1 tells us to run the often agonizing race of the Christian life with perseverance. It refutes the let go and let God passive approach that so many take. You're trying too hard, some will say. Just relax and let his power take over your life. Kick back and somehow it'll happen. Now hear this, to be sure, Christ has provided all you need to run the race. But he demands and deserves that we use what he has given to get in and run. So we endure the pain because he and it are worth it. We play through the pain because the goal is worth it. And verse 1 says the race is marked out for us. Who marked it out for us? Who placed us on the particular track that we're on? That is your life. Believe it or not, I ran cross country in high school. Okay, all right, enough. All right. <laughs> the meets were three miles long. Half the time they took place at an opposing school. These were not run on a track. Most of the schools, the small schools of which we were part of a league, did not even have a track. But rather, they were on a course designed by the school that often took you through town or through woods or a combination. So when you first arrived, you'd get a quick explanation. There was no time for a walkthrough regarding the layout of the course. As you might imagine, 
It was to the home team's advantage to make the course as circuitous and complicated as possible, and they always did that. And of course, they knew the route because they practiced on it every day. But the 10-minute or so explanation was pretty much useless to us. In addition, there were obstacles on the course, known to the home team, but only experienced by the visitors. I recall one place in which the course had a 90-degree turn, and you immediately encountered a large boulder that you instinctively had to jump or you'd run into it. And in addition to that, teams would regularly register large numbers of people who were not serious runners and who would usually not finish the race. They were simply there to get in your way. And so it's a course you don't know with instructions given by someone who does not have your best interest at heart and with obstacles that you know nothing of. That was a cross-country meet when away from home. But the Christian race is a home meet. The course is one which is marked out for you personally. The instructions on how and where to run are given by one who has your interests in his loving heart. The hazards on the course are known completely to him, and they're not designed to trip you up, but to make you stronger for the race. And he is with you, and he's gone before you, and he will bring you safely to the finish. There are things on the path marked out for you that you cannot change. And unless you see that the path is in fact marked out for you, you'll try to create your own. Some things you can change. You can change your career, you can change your location, but some things you cannot, like your spouse or your children or a chronic health problem. And to the extent that you forget that these are marked out for you, to that extent you will seek to create your own disobedient path. Leave your spouse physically or just emotionally. You're still around, but you've checked out. Neglect your children's spiritual well-being. Become angry due to your health struggles. The list could go on. And the readers of this letter to the Hebrews were in danger of faltering. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said to them in chapter 5, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So one preacher said they had made a profession of faith, but then they went into passive coasting mode. This is utterly wrong. God means every Christian to be moving forward to new gains of strength, wisdom, holiness, courage, and joy. From getters to givers, from being taught to teaching. Jesus provides motivation that should lead us to action. And he provides an example that should lead us to imitation. In running the race, and in running it for the long haul and through the difficulties, friends, we're simply following Jesus. And no servant is above his master. Verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
So why look to Jesus as we run our race? Because the goal of the race is Jesus. How do you know when you finish the race? When you're like Jesus. Remember Romans 8, 29, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So ask yourself, as I ask myself, do you think like Jesus does, talk like Jesus does, act like Jesus does? If not, then we still have some running to do. But we cannot, cannot, cannot coast. We will finish our race if we belong to Christ. But although the outcome is inevitable, it is not automatic. That is, the God who has determined the end has also designed and determined the means by which that is to be achieved. The focus on Jesus is what, in fact, the entire book of Hebrews is about, starting from the very first verse. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed, heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And the Father said of the Son, when Jesus was on earth, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased listen to him. So why Jesus over the prophets and over everyone else? Because although he was fully human and although one of his titles is son of God, he did not come into existence like every other son because he is God the son. When we think of son of God, sometimes people think of him somehow coming into existence. But he is God the son. And so the next verse after Hebrews uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, verse 3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. And so it is centered on Jesus, God the Son. He's the one to whom we look. In chapter 2, as the writer of Hebrews talks about the failure of humanity to live up to God's design for us, he says this, But we do see Jesus who was made as we were made, a little lower than the angels, for a little while, and we see him now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he succeeded where all of humanity failed. And the entire book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus to everyone else. Hebrews teaches that he's superior to angels, that he's superior to prophets, superior to every priest who had gone before him. And in fact, he put an end to the formal priesthood, and he is our high priest, to whom we can go directly. I'm not a priest. You need not go through any other person. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the ultimate prophet, priest, and he's the ultimate king, superior to everyone that came before him. But this one who is all of that, lived and suffered and was tempted and died so that he is our model. He is the one we imitate. We look away from everyone and everything else and we look to Jesus to run the race. His image is the goal of our race. And verse 2 says, we fix our eyes on, it's literally 
we look away, that's literally what it says, look away to Jesus. That means to turn away from others and other stuff. Look away from others and other stuff to Jesus. And that turning away is required because our gaze is so easily captured by other persons and things. What, what kind? Well, I've already picked on the golfers, but just one more time. And, and I'm not against golf. I've enjoyed golf when I've been out there. The people who golf with me don't enjoy it because I'm lousy. <laughs> but it's a fine way to relax. Relax your mind. But in the final analysis, does Jesus care about your golf score? Does Jesus care about your tan? Does Jesus care about your next exotic vacation? These things are not necessarily sin. And I'm convinced that the Bible teaches that we must rest if we're to be effective in what God does care about. But if we're honest, we need to admit that instead of playing to live, and in particular to live for Christ, too many of us just live to play. And Jesus provides an example that should lead us to imitation. It means looking away from lesser persons and things to him and what he cares about. So we should imitate Jesus' endurance, I say in the outline. Verse 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Endured here, set of Jesus, is the same as the word perseverance set of us in verse 1. Jesus endured the cross. He's our example for our perseverance, our endurance. It means the word persevere or endure. It's a word that means to bear up under the circumstances that you're placed in. How many of you have been plotting all week, for months, perhaps for years, for how to change the course? The solution is to change the course, you think. And you're thinking about how to do that. And God doesn't say that's the solution. He says the, the solution is to endure the course. Persevere in the course. How did Jesus do that? Why did he endure? Because of the joy set before him and the confidence that he would arrive at his appointed destination to, at the end of verse 2, sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. One commentator asks, where did he find his joy in running such a difficult faith race? Why would he endure the shame, endure the cross, and have joy at the same time? Because he saw past that to the goal of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the model of faith because he sees past the horrendous persecution, the horrendous suffering, far worse than any of us would endure. He saw through to the very end. His joy in the race was that he could see through the suffering, through the agony, through the shame, to the reign on the right hand of the Father. And we run, we, friends, run for the same prize that Jesus ran for. And we achieve it in the same way he did. We run for the joy of exaltation that God promises will be ours if we glorify him on earth as his son did. 
We glorify God by allowing his character to shine through us and by obeying his will in everything we do. When we anticipate the heavenly reward of faithful service, hear this, joy will be ours now in the midst of the difficulty. What gives us joy in this life is confidence of reward in the next. We look forward to the day when our Lord says to us, well done, come and share in your master's happiness. We should imitate Jesus' endurance and his attitude. Verse 2, he endured the cross scorning its shame. Now, if one scorns something, one normally has nothing to do with it. But scorning its shame means rather that Jesus thought so little of the pain and shame involved, he didn't bother to avoid it. He endured it. Scorning its shame, one commentator says, despising the shame, despising the world, despising the fact that we're despised. Jesus knew he was despised by a world that crucified him, that persecutes Christians. We know that, but we also know that the people who do that do not understand what it is they do. And so we despise being despised. And we move ahead despite that. This should be our attitude toward the world and all that is opposed to Jesus, we scorn its shame. We should, like Moses, you're at chapter 12. If you just look back in chapter 11, verse 26. Everybody have a Bible? Because sometimes when I say, hey, look at something, I got people who are like, I don't know what you're like. Right? But it's chapter 11, verse 26, that says of Moses, he regarded disgrace for the sake of, of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. We should imitate Jesus' endurance, his attitude, and finally, we imitate his confidence. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As we've seen, he did it because he was confident of what was ahead. When our Annie was little and she was sad, I would tell her to look ahead. And I would say, think about some of the things potentially ahead for you. High school, graduation, marriage, children, and crucially, heaven when we're fully like Jesus. Now, many of those are not guaranteed. But heaven for the Christian always is. And so we look ahead. And it changes our attitude as we look ahead to the future about the present. So in the words of those great theologians, Fleetwood Mac, Why not think about times to come and not about the things you've done? If your life was bad to you, just think what tomorrow will do. And think about tomorrow for the Christian and the reward. There is always something good, 
always something good ahead for us. The connection between Jesus' race and ours is not just emulation. Rather, because he completed his, we, friends, will complete ours. Remember at the beginning I talked about the director, the coach, the teacher? Jesus is all of those for us in the Christian race. Because the director knows how the story goes, he can lead you to play your part well. Because the coach has played the game, he can see you to victory. Because the teacher has completed the course, he can prepare you to complete it. But Jesus made, created the director, the coach, and the teacher and caused them to be what they are. And so we should constantly be saying, isn't he amazing? Chapter 11 is faith's hall of fame. It tells us all that they accomplished by faith, by belief. But verse 2 says Jesus, verse 2 of chapter 12, he's the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Notice it says the pioneer and perfecter of faith, not the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, of any faith, of faith in general. So one commentator asks, why do we want to look to him? Because he's the author, the pioneer of faith, the Greek word archagos. He's the reason that we have any faith. He gave it as a gift. He's the leader, the originator, the author. He's the one who granted us faith out of his store. He too has faith as exhibited in his attitude toward his father. Back in chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. You cannot please God without believing him. But what did God the Father say about God the Son? As we saw earlier, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father was pleased with Jesus because he always believed his Father. And that's why he never sinned. I do what my Father says. I do what the Father shows me to do. I do what the Father does. In his temptations, he quoted the words of Scripture, believing every word of it. He took everything that God his Father ever said and put his complete trust in that. His faith was so strong that, even, that it even sustained joy as he looked at the cross and its shame. He knew that the shame, he believed, would only be temporary, only for a little while. He believed God would take him through the cross, out the other side of the grave, and set him at his right hand. That's faith. That's faith that faced the crisis, the likes of which no human being has ever faced except him. And that's how great his faith was. He believed God. He's the pioneer of faith, the author of faith, but also the, the prototype of faith. The Greek word teleon, the perfecter. He carries it to its completion. He's the perfect illustration of faith, perfect faith beginning to end. He believed God totally in everything. He raised faith to its perfection and he established the highest example of faith. He is the source then of faith and he models it. And so, friends, we look to Jesus who gives and who completes our faith. So I ask you, who's your life about? What's your life about? To whom or to what are you looking to order your life? If it's anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not the race marked out for us, friends. We prioritize our lives around the race he's given us to become like him. We remove everything that's an obstacle to that. Every distraction, every hindrance. We seek to mortify, kill the sin 
that fails to model the character of God that we were made to do. We fix our eyes on the prize, Jesus, and we run the race as he did. Here is your take-home truth. What we see in Jesus' life and his work in others should motivate us to live as he did. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us in your presence. Thank you for your word that tells us about you, tells us about ourselves, tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us about his person and work when he walked the earth and completed the mission for which he came to live the life that we were made to live and he died the death that we deserve. And so we thank you for his perfect life and his substitutionary death for us. Lord, you never intended our belief in those things about Jesus to be a one-time transaction. But rather, our belief in the life and death of Jesus is to be an ongoing belief that guides and molds our very lives, that sets our priorities, He is at the right hand of the Father. He is the king of his world. We owe our allegiance to him. And so, Lord, help us, your people, who claim your name, to align our lives accordingly. May you be pleased with us as we do, as we run the race. And together we look forward to being in your presence and hearing well done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.